Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a businesswoman and investor whose mission is to encourage a new generation of people from diverse backgrounds to become tech entrepreneurs. We invest very early, so we're investing in companies that are at maximum 14 weeks old. There's barely a company there at that stage. That was Alice Bentink, who came into the FT recently to talk to me about the business of investing in talent. So we're joined today by Alice Bentink, who is the co-founder of Entrepreneur First, which is a very interesting organisation based in London, trying to promote a new generation of entrepreneurs. Alice, can you tell us how this came about? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on Tectonic. Entrepreneur First started eight years ago now, um, as you say, in London. And really, when we first started, the key idea was how do we help some of the most talented people in the UK to become an entrepreneur, to become a founder of a company? Now, many, many things have changed over the last eight years with every startup and idea morphs and changes. But I suppose the thing that hasn't changed for us is this idea of enabling the most talented, the most impactful individuals to see entrepreneurship as a viable and possible career path. And we have a programme and structure that takes individuals before they have a team, before they have an idea, just at that very, very beginning stage of thinking about entrepreneurship, all the way through to having a seed-funded company. Do you think this reflects a cultural change that students now want to become entrepreneurs, or does it reflect more of the impact of technology that the latest technologies are enabling companies to grow and scale very quickly in a different way from traditional businesses? It's a combination of the two. We're seeing a shift in aspiration. We have offices all around the world, so in Europe and in Asia, and we're seeing particularly this change in London where suddenly now entrepreneurship is not just a sidecar career path, it's an aspirational career path that people see as equivalent to joining Goldman Sachs or joining Google or whatever other prestigious employer. But largely this has been enabled by the decreasing cost of building a startup. And I suppose when we talk about startups, the kind of companies that we're interested in creating Entrepreneur First are these scale-up companies, these companies that are not just trying to reach a couple of hundred people, just their local market, but individuals who are trying to build globally important companies. And the kind of decreasing costs of creating a technology company has meant that a career in entrepreneurship can now be started with a couple of thousand pounds. I was talking recently to Sebastian Semyakovsky, who's the co-founder of Klarna, a Swedish startup. And he was arguing that when he graduated from the Stockholm School of Economics, about 7% of his graduating class, if I remember right, said they wanted to be entrepreneurs. He went back and gave a speech last year, and it was 70%. Has there been a real radical shift, do you think, in the student population that people really want to be entrepreneurs rather than joining Shell or the Civil Service or McKinsey? When we started eight years ago, I remember being on campus in Cambridge, and we were at a careers fair and sort of stopping people. And I stopped this young man and said, hey, have you ever thought about being a founder? And he looked at me with total disgust, as if I'd sort of asked him some horrific question. And he was like, no, I've got a graduate job at this, I won't say the company's name, very big tech company. And he just couldn't even fathom that this could be an aspirational career path. And that was very typical eight years ago. We've seen a big shift in our day-to-day work, but we actually did a study this year where we went out and spoke to 2018 to 30-year-olds. And 50% of them said that they saw starting a company as the way to realise their career ambitions. And I think that's really important wording, that now starting a company is not just something that you do on a whim or as a side project. It's a way of achieving impact in your life. It's a way of achieving whatever personal aspirations and ambitions you have. What makes a great entrepreneur? Are they born or made? 
This is a great question and one I think that has for a long time held back the investment, the VC industry. For a long time, I think there's been an assumption that founders are born. And not just that they're born, that their founding story is created at a very young age. So they meet their co-founder at primary school, at kindergarten, and these sort of blood brothers, blood sisters grow up together and become founders of whatever company. At Entrepreneur First, we've turned that assumption on its head. We believe that the world is missing out on many of the best potential founders. And the reason why it's missing out is based on where those individuals are brought up and where they live. People's aspirations are so culturally dependent. So your parents, your peers will push and encourage you into certain career paths. When I was leaving McKinsey, I had the option to join my co-founder, Matt, to start Entrepreneur First or to join Google. And 99.9% of peers and friends and family said, join Google. It was the kind of approved career path. And I think what we're seeing now is a real shift. And I think largely driven by the work that we've been doing at Entrepreneur First around saying, actually, how can we change people's career aspirations and ambitions? And in the early days of EF, we did some sort of slightly silly things, mainly for people's parents, where we took our first cohorts to Buckingham Palace and number 10 to really show this could be an aspirational career path. But what we're seeing now is individuals realise that if they want to have impact with their career, the easiest route to do that is through being an entrepreneur. And yes, there is high risk. But if you are a highly talented individual, the opportunity cost of being stuck in a conventional corporate career is just too high. Okay. What do you do at EF? How do you help this cohort of budding entrepreneurs to make it? The most important thing that we do is bring together a community of like-minded individuals. So for each of our programmes, we get over a thousand applications and we spend about three months screening that down to the final 100 people that join. And really, that joining group is one of the most important assets that we give the individuals who join us. It's a group of super smart, super committed individuals who are ready to start a startup right now. And that group of people is where you find your co-founder. So you have this slightly weird human experiment 12 weeks where you try out different co-founders. And typically, individuals will go through about two and a half co-founders during that 12-week period. But what we see is there are some kind of comparisons here to online dating, where before online dating, you were reasonably constrained in terms of the kind of people that you could co-found a company with. And there was this assumption that you had to have met and sort of known someone for the entirety of your life. But what that meant was there was a real restriction on who could become a co-founder, because if you didn't have someone in your network, you couldn't become a co-founder. Well, like online dating, we've given people access to a much wider range of individuals who are all ready to start a startup right now. There are some pretty good longitudinal studies on the success of online dating. And now if you meet your partner online, you're more likely to get through your first year of marriage than if you meet organically. And I think what we're seeing now is a sort of realisation that this inorganic way of meeting your co-founder, of throwing together carefully screened individuals, is actually more effective than going through the organic route, which has a huge number of transaction costs and can be very messy. So how does Tinder for entrepreneurs work in practice? So we see on average individuals go through about two and a half teams during that period. But we actually have a week, week six, which is focused on breakups, where we will try and break up the majority of the cohort um, get people out of teams that aren't working and give them the opportunity to try a new team. One of the large things we do is just remove the social friction of having that conversation. It's not very nice to turn around to someone and say, hey, <laughs> I don't want to be your co-founder anymore. So our team helps to facilitate that process. One of the things that intrigues me about EF is that Reid Hoffman, one of the founders of LinkedIn and Greylock Venture Partners, is one of the investors in EF. And he certainly believes in the concept of blitz scaling, that you should expand incredibly fast. I've heard you and Matt also talking about the need to blitz scale your industry. Is it possible to blitz scale a human industry? 
Blitzscaling is a kind of core concept for SDF. The companies that we want to build need to be able to scale fast. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is our business model is a venture capital business model. We're subject to the power law. We need to build really, really big companies to make up for the fact that a large part of our portfolio won't succeed. But I suppose that's also when we're thinking about impact, a point here around what do scale-ups contribute to the economy? And scale-ups are one of the major contributors to job growth. So about 20% of the jobs created each year come from these very nascent scale-up companies rather than traditional big corporates. When it comes to scaling something like EF itself, which is, you know, it's not a software company, it's not an app, it's a human process. We have a, a reasonably large team, we've got about 120 people across our six locations that just work for EF. But I suppose one of the things that's been really interesting for us is that we're in Berlin and we're in Bangalore and we're in Hong Kong and Singapore and Paris. And actually the way the program works in each of those locations is very similar. We haven't had to do much localization. The reason I think this is, is because we take technologists and we primarily work with individuals who have these deeply technical backgrounds. And interestingly, the international culture of being a technologist is very consistent. So it doesn't matter if you're Indian or German or French. What matters is that you've been taught to think and work in a certain way. And that actually is part of what makes EF work, that we're taking a reasonably homogenous group of individuals in terms of how they've been trained to think. You're mentioning there that you back a lot of technologists in particular. What are the most interesting areas of technology that you're backing? AI, robotics, VR, what are the really hot investment sectors at the moment, do you think? We're always led by talent. We want to know what the most talented and ambitious individuals want to work on. And we've seen that change over the last couple of years. So the majority of our portfolio is still using some form of artificial intelligence in the work they do. And this can be in very many broad ways. We've got a company called Tractable that was one of our very first companies that we invested in. And they use AI to automate car insurance claims all the way through to something like Kieran Medical, which is using computer vision to improve the detection of breast cancer. And they've now got to the stage where they have superhuman accuracy at, at predicting that. So we've been doing a lot of AI companies. What we're seeing now in terms of the trends are we're seeing a lot more biotech coming through, whether it's different ways of purifying water, different types of membranes. I was in Singapore last week meeting some of our next batch that are coming through. And we had a really fascinating company working on new ways to detect STIs using saliva. So we're beginning to see the cost of producing a biotech company fall pretty significantly. So now it's possible to use early stage seed capital, early stage venture capital to invest in something like biotech. So I think that is going to be one of the next big waves. We see in Asia a lot more hardware, whether it's robotics or whether it's new forms of chemical processes. Actually, that works really well, largely because of the proximity to Shenzhen. And so using that as one of our bases for hardware. But I suppose in terms of trends, biotech for us is really the big one right now. And how does London in particular compare with the other global centres that you're now operating in? London is a fantastic place to start a company. A couple of reasons. One, it's very easy to start a company here. And you shouldn't underestimate that. Having now started EF branches in five other countries, the UK is a remarkably easy place legally to set up a company. I think London as a city has a remarkable combination of government, global, corporate headquarters and the finance industry. And I suppose for the kind of company that we run at EF, it is a talent aggregator. It brings many of the world's best people to London, whether it's for their corporate careers, whether it's for academia. And for us, that means it's one of the best cities in the world for us right now. Do you think Brexit is going to affect that in a big way? My biggest concern about Brexit is the impact it will have on our universities. And so I'm very keen that we make it easy for individuals from across the world to still access our universities. We have. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. 
If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. I have some of the most amazing computer science departments in the world, some of the most amazing computer science professors. And so making sure that we can still aggregate the world's best talent in the UK through our university ecosystem is super important. When you're looking to back new businesses, what do you think is the most important? Is it an individual, a particularly brilliant individual? Is it a team, the co-founders that you've put together? Is it the product that they come up with? Is it just the business idea and the business model? What really would convince you to invest or to back a new business? We invest very early. So we're investing in companies that are at maximum 14 weeks old. There's barely a company there at that stage. So really, we're investing in the team. We see ourselves not as a accelerator, not as an incubator, not as a seed fund. We see ourselves as talent investors. I suppose the slightly more complex answer is that it's a mixture of team and market. So a bad team in a good market might be able to make it work, but unfortunately a good team in a bad market definitely can't make it work. I suppose one of the examples from one of our early cohorts, we had two amazing founders called Jacob and Lawrence. And the problem that they wanted to solve was trying to reduce prescriptions of antibiotics very noble and very high impact problem to solve. And they worked on this for a year and we backed them, despite the fact they were struggling to get much traction, but we backed them because we really believed in the team. But after a year, it became clear that doctors agreed with this in principle, but actually the decision-making framework they'd come up with to support doctors to stop prescribing antibiotics wasn't really working. But through their process of working with doctors, working within the NHS, they realised there was a new problem to solve around communications and helping doctors communicate with their patients. So almost two years after they first started, because it was such a high quality team, they were able to pivot into a new market. And Accurix, the company, is now in one in five doctor surgeries, being the primary tool for communication between doctors and their patients. And they just closed a Series A earlier this year. So that really was an example of the team were fantastic. They went after a slightly crappy market, but were able to, through high productivity, diligence and good customer development, get to a good market. Do you think it's the fate of many of the companies that you're backing to end up being bought by a Google or an Amazon or one of the big US tech companies in particular? I guess the best worked example of a company that came through the EF program was Magic Pony, which is founded, I believe, by two graduates from Imperial College who created a really interesting company that then ended up being bought by Twitter, I believe, in 2016. Is that where most of these young, promising tech companies are going to end up? There's a short and a long answer on this. So acquisitions aren't necessarily bad. If you look at the distribution of startups, not everyone is going to become a billion dollar company. And I suppose if you think about Magic Pony, for example, that was a reported $150 million exit in 18 months. So from an investor perspective, it was an amazing IRR. From a founder perspective, I'm sure they're very happy too. <laughs> they were very happy as well. And that was an amazing piece of technology that was basically improving the way that videos are processed. And it was a piece of technology that was very relevant for Twitter at the time. One of the concerns about Europe in particular is that we sell our companies before they get to the point where they can be billion dollar companies. 
And this is something that we do need to change. I don't think we change it by resisting exits. I think we change it by changing the kind of people and the quantity of people coming into the startup ecosystem. So we often get asked the question, why isn't there a Google? Why isn't there a Facebook that's come out of the UK? And our response to that is, well, Mark Zuckerberg would probably be a VP at Goldman Sachs. Larry and Sergey probably would have joined Microsoft Research. For a very long time, we've seen many of our most ambitious and impactful individuals go into traditional corporate careers. And so our way of changing this is to say, okay, well, how can we change those career aspirations and give these individuals the framework and tools they need to become founders? So exits aren't necessarily a bad thing. I think the really nice thing about the Magic Pony story is that the founders have invested in our fund. They're now seed investing in other startups. So they're building the London ecosystem and giving back to the London ecosystem. And that's useful. And they're great role models and poster children for entrepreneurship. But at EF, we're still driving to try and get those big outcomes. One of the things that you've been very vocal about is the need to have greater diversity in the startup world and the tech industry in general. How do we achieve that? It's hard. It's a big problem. When Matt, my co-founder, and I first started Entrepreneur First eight years ago, we thought it would be an easy problem to solve. Optimistic naivety. And our approach to solve this was by starting a not-for-profit called Code First Girls. It actually started as an internal marketing campaign, but became so wildly successful, we span it out. And this is an organization that teaches women to code for free at university. And the idea was to really reduce the barrier to learning to code, creating a community within universities, giving them face-to-face courses, a very sort of light touch, easy way to access basic tech skills. It's done a fantastic job at teaching thousands of women to code over the last five years. But unfortunately, we haven't necessarily seen a very strong conversion to becoming an entrepreneur. Pipeline is an issue. We know that only about 16% of graduates in the UK from computer science courses are female. And unfortunately, that's a number that has been stable or decreasing over the last 20, 30 years rather than increasing. Pipeline is one issue. I think pipeline is often the lazy answer. What we do at EF and what we encourage our companies to do is be very, very proactive around diversity. Often our portfolio companies come to me and say, Alice, we need more women on the team. How do we get more women? And the number one mistake they make is waiting for women to apply. We find this at EF as well, that to find the very best underrepresented talent, whether it's women, whether it's other groups, you have to reach out to them and you have to proactively reach out to them. I was speaking to a sort of expert in the industry recently and they were saying, we were talking about this problem and how do we solve it? And they were saying one of the things that they've learned recently is that it takes two weeks for an underrepresented category to reply to a cold message, whereas a white male would probably reply within 24 hours. So not only do you need to be more proactive about how you approach underrepresented individuals, you also need to have a longer lead time. So I think the more that the industry can be deliberate about this, take positive action through things like Code First Girls, and also, I suppose, have the conversation. And one of the conversations I've been part of recently is through a organization called Moving Forward, which was set up in the US after the sexual misconduct scandals in the VC industry. What this is doing and what we've been pushing in the UK is getting VCs to say, here is our sexual harassment policy, here is our anti discrimination reporting procedure and making that very, very transparent. So even just pushing VCs to have that conversation and pushing them to have it at a partner level, we're beginning to see a bit of a difference. But there's no silver bullet, unfortunately. It's the entire industry, both from a founder perspective and from an investor perspective, pushing consistently for probably the next decade to really change this. Is it different in other parts of the world? You get the impression that certainly in the Chinese tech industry and the Singaporean industry, there is greater diversity of backgrounds and genders in some of the companies that are being founded. Is that right? 
We see challenges in diversity across all of our locations. Our aim at EF is to have a cohort that reflects the diversity of the city we're in, which is very different if you look at London versus Bangalore. In Asia, what we have seen is more technical female PhDs joining our cohorts. And so we're looking at 25 to 30% gender diversity, whereas in Europe, we're looking at more like 18 to 22% in our cohorts. So it's still not great, but it's a little bit better. And how can we use technology to improve society? A lot of the big tech companies at the moment appear, so the critics would say, to be damaging society in many different ways. And there is a whole movement now, kind of AI for good, tech for good. Do you think that the entrepreneurs who are emerging now are focused on a different set of problems to a lot of the big tech companies? Can they help address some of the social economic problems that we face? I do a lot of interviewing and over the last eight years I've probably interviewed just over 1,200 individuals who want to join EF and one of the basic questions is why do you want to be a founder? The number one answer which has been consistent over time is impact uh, and that means different things to different people but it often has this element of um, social impact. People want to do good in the world and if you look at our portfolio about sort of 25-30% of our companies focus on med tech um, where improving the accuracy of diagnoses, um, improving the way that we uh, capture and process um, different types of tests, whether it's blood or saliva or whatever it may be. Um, it's very hard to sort of question the positive impact that those kind of companies can have. I think where the conversation becomes quite interesting is what happens when you're an AI company that is replacing jobs or removing jobs. And I think that's still a large part of the conversation that we need to have as an industry and as an ecosystem. Because, yes, I think we can see productivity for the UK improve significantly by embracing AI. But I think one of the things that is encouraging is that the next generation of founders do care about impact and they do care about social impact. So even though they are building AI products, they are thinking about what is the knock-on effect of that. Can you give us some examples of that? Where are some of these AI startups now doing good? A large part of it is still within the med tech and biotech industries. You know, Kieran, I think, is an amazing example where Peter, one of the founders for a long time, was studying breast cancer and studying different ways of identifying cancerous growths. But really, it was only when he joined Entrepreneur First that he was able to see how that could become a product that could impact hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around the world, rather than on a smaller academic scale. They're now at the stage where they are working with hospitals. They're able to support radiologists to make better decisions than they would otherwise. And I think there, you know, it's very hard to question the positive impact. And one of the amazing things is how much radiologists want to work with them and see this as a positive change in their workflow. Can you give us other examples of companies that are using tech for good? So it's not just about medtech. I suppose another area that we're seeing a lot of interest in is food production. We're at a really interesting juncture in the world's history where because of climate change, it's becoming harder and harder to have consistent food production. We've got a company called Optimal that is improving the efficiency of these sort of giant greenhouse type farms that are very prevalent in the Netherlands, but are probably going to become the default way of producing food in the future. And what they're doing is looking at how can you improve the efficiency from an energy perspective and from a productivity perspective of these sort of ginormous, I mean, they're kind of the size of a football stadium, but filled full of tomatoes. So thinking about the sustainability of our food production, both now and to the future, that's a really impactful company. We have a company called Transcelestial in Singapore that is creating a laser communication network in space. 
And the idea is you can use lasers to create a new form of high-speed broadband internet. And because you're in space, you can bring it to a wider group of people as well. So potentially bringing internet to a group of people who haven't had high-speed broadband before. So I think there's always a challenge within business where you are balancing scaling very fast, your investors' interests, and this desire to have a positive impact on the world. But I think this is where talent is core. If you support these kind of individuals who want to have impact, I suppose a more millennial approach and more millennial mindset to become founders, we should see that in the kind of companies they create. Final question. When I was reading up about your background, I noticed that you have a great expertise in competitive carriage driving. Is that right? Is driving fast through narrow spaces a very good training for what you're doing now? I think managing unruly horses and trying not to hit large obstacles is a, is a pretty good um, analogy for uh, entrepreneurship. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Alice. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners. So please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon.